Welcome to America's Top Rabbitons. May this class be for Rafua Shalema, for Eliezer Raphael Leib Ben Amuna, and also for Chaim Shaya Ben Malkobrena. Please click subscribe to the subscribe button to subscribe to us on the America's Top Rabbitons YouTube page, or click follow to follow us on your podcasting app so that you are the first to know when an inspiring new episode is posted. I am so happy to have on today's show, Rebetzin Bracha Leads. Rebetzin Bracha, along with her husband, Rabbi Gil, are the co-directors of the Roar Chabad Jewish Student Center at the University of California in Berkeley, California, where they themselves were once students. Rebison Bracha and her husband offer the students at the University of California, Berkeley, a full offering of classes, including Jewish philosophy, Hebrew reading, Hasidic insights into Torah readings, as well as a relationship class for women and also a relationship class for men as well. Um, being a representative of a Jewish organization that focuses primarily on college age students is really a wonderful and unique opportunity to have a positive effect on a young person's life. I think it's amazing that you do that. Please tell us more about yourself and what you do. Thank you so much for having me today. I just can't help myself but say that when I got the email asking me to be on a podcast called America's Top Rebbitsons, which I was not familiar with at all until I got that email, at first I thought it was spam because I, I couldn't imagine why someone is asking me to be on that such a, podca a podcast with such a title. Um, but I will say that because of the work that I do and because of my strong influence and inspiration from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, it's one of the things that I know um, that I'm not really exempt from the ability to step up when it's needed. And one of the, the lessons that I take is that we have to be influencers wherever we are, wherever we go, whatever we do. We don't have the luxury to sit back and just watch things happen, but we have to be active and doing. And so um, I went back to the email and I thought, okay, let me check this out and see what this is about. Um, but I do want to say that I am here representing all the people who maybe are listening and maybe are not um, on the interview end, but we're all America's top repetitions. I just want to say that, that every single Jewish woman has the power to be an influencer in your world and you are the top in your world and that's how we change the world is uh, from that place. So um, I'm very humbled that you um, asked me to be here and I'll, I'll give you a little bit of my background just to give some context and then I'll share about what I'm doing currently. So just a little background. I'm not going to share my whole life story, but just because um, just it's kind of interesting. So I, I did grow up in a very loving home, thank God. And I had a very big performing arts background as a kid. So I was actually a hip hop dancer. I was very involved in musical theater. I did Shakespeare performances. I studied opera. I learned French, German, and Italian opera as a kid. I always had a goal and a dream my whole life to perform in a, a Broadway show. And I did at the age of 11, I performed at the Pantages Theater in Hollywood. Um, I sang and performed and danced at the Sydney Opera House in Australia for the Olympics in 2000 as part of a group of young performers. That was a really big part of my life. I directed many productions. I also got paid to perform all over LA and the LA Marathon and all sorts of events and, and stuff as a kid. That was um, a big chunk of my childhood. I, I, I Jewishly, I grew up in a conservative Jewish household. Um, we weren't regular, mem you know, frequenters of synagogue services or anything like that. But as I got older, it was something that I got more interested in. And somewhere around bat mitzvah age, high school-ish, I started um, 
getting more involved in it in an interesting way. I used to read from the Torah every single week. I would have an aliyah and I would, I would sometimes fill in for the rabbi and lead the services or for the cantor. I used to have a solo every year in the choir for the high holidays. And I was also very involved in teaching in the Hebrew school and all sorts of things like that. So I had that going on as well, but in somewhere in the middle of all that, in the middle of high school, I decided that I was going to be done with all my performing arts. My big trip to Sydney, Australia for the Olympics was in the year 2000. That year I was just finishing 10th grade and I decided that I was done at that point. I had was ready to retire from my performing arts career and instead I wanted to shift gears and I decided that I wanted to become a surgeon. And there's a long story behind that, but it was something that was part of me sort of proving to myself and to the world, my intelligence, and that I wasn't just some kind of dumb actress, at least how I felt about it in my mind. And so I was sort of working on a path of pre-med and getting, you know, getting myself into the top college, which I did. I got into UC Berkeley, which was the number one public school in the country. And I ended up, you know, um, studying molecular and cell biology with an emphasis in cell and developmental biology while I was at Berkeley. And I also was very involved at the Hillel there. And I used to lead the conservative services there every Friday night. I taught in a conservative Hebrew school while I was there. And let's just say that without going into all the details, it was my first exposure in college to anything that was, you know, outside of the Judaism that I grew up with or the, the Jewish practice that I grew up with, which was unique. And it was my first time experiencing Chabad. I got involved in Chabad and one thing led to the next. And before I knew it, I was... Um, pretty much living a Chabad lifestyle. I had graduated Berkeley after three years of, of college. So I graduated a year early. I ended up deciding to study in a seminary in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, um, a Chabad seminary where I was there for another two years. And interestingly enough, my husband, who was also a Berkeley student and was on his own journey, we had met our freshman year in college. He also got involved in Chabad in college and on his own, like four years of us not really seeing each other, having anything to do with each other. We met up at some point and actually dated and got married. And the crazy part of the story, as you mentioned in the bio in the intro, was that we actually ended up moving back to the exact same campus that we were both students at, which is pretty unusual. So fast forward, it's been now 15 years and my husband and I have been running the Chabad on campus for students at UC Berkeley. And we typically host anywhere between 80 to 150 students on a regular Friday night dinner. We have now, as you can imagine, this is our 15th year. So there's alumni who have graduated and have moved on. Many of them are married. Many of them have their own families and their own Jewish stories and their own Jewish journeys. We are connected with them and we do annual alumni events. Um, over the years, a lot of you know things have come up for us in our lives that have sort of um, dictated what our day-to-day -day life is like. So my husband is also a Moyle and he does circumcisions for uh, for Jewish babies all over the Bay Area. I also have been running a mikvah for the past 11 years here in Berkeley, which has been another major avenue of, of our shluchas on, you know, in, in this part of the world. Um, and then more recently, I've been involved in a few global things, and maybe that's how you found me, I don't know. Um, one of which is that about five years back, I went through a certification through mikvah.org to be a certified college teacher. And in addition to that, I have recently been involved now in the program as a mentor, and it's been absolutely life 
life-changing. When I first joined, I didn't think that I was ever going to actually be teaching any kalas. It wasn't part of my reason for joining. I, every once in a while, very rarely taught a kala. But actually, thanks to COVID and things going on Zoom, it became a big need and people were searching for teachers on Zoom. And that became something I started doing a lot more recently but especially the mentorship and working with the mikvah.org program and helping them build their, their network of certified college teachers. And it's just been unbelievable. Just my, um, my work with mikvah.org. I don't officially work with that. I'm not an official um, team member, but I, I, I consider myself a part of it. I, I really um, believe in their work very much. And they've done so much to increase the observance of Taras and Mishpacha worldwide by creating all sorts of opportunities for women to listen to podcasts and, you know, do halacha reviews online. And that's something I've been very, very involved in recently behind the scenes and helping make that happen and, and spreading the word. And then a totally, totally crazy separate thing, um, which is kind of what the topic of this podcast is tonight is, and I, or today, I never thought that this would be a topic that I would have my name connected with or be associated with, but somehow it's just become a super big passion, which is the topic of Sneas. So, I mean, maybe we'll, we'll ask some more questions and I can tell you more about it, <laughs> how I got involved wow that is so exciting you've done so much your life is so it's so rich and it's so varied and there's so much nuance in it and the fact like like we were saying like you went to uc berkeley you left and then you came back it's so unique because you really know the school and you can really connect with the students both by your experience as a former student and now bringing your new views and like your new your passion for judaism and chabad into their lives i think it's so special um, so yes, as you mentioned today, we're going to dive into a subject that affects women all over the world, whether they're aware of it or not, really. Um, we're going to talk about the Mita, the character trait of Tsnias, which is often translated as modesty, but really it goes much, much deeper than that. I mean, yes, it, it really, it does have to do with what the what clothing you're wearing, but that is just the tip of the iceberg. And it's not, when you get to the deep meaning of Tsnias, it's not really about clothing at all. There's a lot more to Tsnias than people realize. So can you, you please talk to us about the full depth and meaning of what it means to be Tsnias? I really love this question. So I'll tell you how, <laughs> this is kind of a crazy story, but when, um, when COVID first hit and there was a, a big, big shift in my day-to-day -day life because we were very active on campus and we were hosting hundreds of students a week and classes every single night and boom, basically all of that got shut down and we weren't even allowed to host um, even 10 people together um, by university rules. So, and no one knew how long that was going to last for, obviously, and we thought it was going to be short, <laughs> um, but there was definitely a feeling in the air of some kind of energy that was like something happened has to be done. Like we really have to do something. What, what is it that we need to do? Hashem is sending us a sign globally, you know, like this is an opportunity, but we, but like, you know, what is it? Like, what are we supposed to be focused on? And I think everyone was searching high and low and doing mitzvahs and learning and davening and praying and all these different things and getting involved in all sorts of campaigns. And honestly, I am a person who maybe it's just my nature and you can maybe tell from my bio, some of the things that I've been interested in and that I've done. I mean, I like challenges and I was thinking to myself, you know, I know that Hashem wants something from us right now. And I, I have a feeling that it's something that's really hard for us. Um, because it's taken a major, major wake up, wake up, shaking, you know, we're all being um, stirred and there's got to be something that we have to be focusing on. So I had been involved already with a group of women who I had been meeting with regularly um, for years already to work on SNEAS together. It was just something that we started to strengthen ourselves and we did our own learning. And, you know, it was something that we just did to keep ourselves up and up and inspired 
because it's easy to lose sight of, uh, you know, like inspiration in different areas. And, and this is a hard one too. There's so much peer pressure and there's so much uh, influence around us. And especially as, um, you know, Rabbitsons around the world who might be in communities where it's not necessarily very large Jewish communities, but we are the only ones in our community, let's say, who are keeping these standards. So it's hard. We have to constantly be strengthening ourselves. So I had a group of friends that we were meeting together and, you know, I, over the years, I, part of my story that I didn't share all the details of is that what inspired me to really make big changes in my own life were the women that I met who I felt were very empowered and very strong Jewish women. And their, their, the lifestyle that they had was something that really appealed to me, which was very different than the lifestyle that I had. It wasn't about great accomplishments or, you know, um, the big titles or whatever it was. It was just some kind of a vibe that I picked up on and something that I was very much attracted to. And for me, I realized, you know, maybe it was because of where I was coming from that I felt that part of me missing. And so when I saw it, I immediately recognized it. And I said, yeah, that's what I want. And I was able to identify it. But as I got involved, you know, more in religious observance, life, observant life and, you know, and, and living in it now for a while, it's been like 20 years or so. Um, one of the things that I noticed is that not everybody shares that, you know, sense of amazing feeling toward the, like the aspect of modesty or tzniyas or this, this idea. So it's always been something that's fascinated me. Why is it that some people like are just, wow, this is amazing. Yeah, this is great. I want to do it. And some people are like struggling with it. And some people like really have a lot of blockages in this area. So I've noticed it more and more. And some people will look at the world and especially in the religious world and say like, wow, you know, like this is an area that, you know, people are really struggling with. Um, it seems to be getting harder and harder. There's so many other influences, you know, like creeping up on us that it's, it's hard to keep strong in this area when we're such a global world and we have so much social media and so many images around us that, you know, how do we, how do we deal with that? So Personally, I came across something and I wanted to share it with you now. This is what inspired me to really, really focus on this mitzvah was one of the teachings from the Lubavitcher Rebbe that he actually spoke in the year 1991. And part of it is a very famous teaching, which many people might be aware of because it's actually based on the writings of the Arizal. He spoke about how our generation is considered a reincarnation of the generation that left Mitzrayim, that left Egypt. And it says that just like it was in the merit of the righteous women that left that generation that they were redeemed so too it's going to be in the merit of the righteous women that our generation is also going to be redeemed that us women were like on the front lines here and the Rebbe spoke about this many times and I think it's very amazing it was something that inspired me all along and wanted me to you know get involved anyway with Chabad but I, I will say that um, I came across a line that was a continuation of this teaching that really really struck me and this is what got me going was that he wrote that um, it's understood that adding in Sneas specifically of women and girls in this final hour, meaning like the moments leading right up to Mashiach's arrival, when we're like in the, in the birth pangs, so to speak, where it seems so dark and we can't even, you know, see the light at the end of the tunnel, but yet we're so close. He said, that's something that will speed up even more the true and complete Geula, the redemption. And I, I read that and I was like, wow, you know, now this isn't the only thing the Rebbe spoke for years about, you know, different ways that we can speed up Mashiach coming. And honestly, you know, I'm very mission focused. I'm very goal oriented. And I feel like whatever mitzvah we're going to be doing, we have to focus on what's the big picture. Why am I doing it at all? I mean, there's many reasons to do mitzvahs. We're making connections with Hashem. You know, we're following Hashem's command and so on. But there's a bigger global um, you know, perspective, which is that we're part of a big picture and we're headed somewhere. We're on a mission. And we as a collective community have to um, be a part of that. We're all 
we're all playing a role. We need everyone to get along. We need everyone to get on board. And this is not an easy thing. Um, there are so many things that we can be focused on and we should be focused on. But this one really struck me as like, this is not this is not an easy one. So let's let's do something about it. How can we get people on board with it? How can we make this something that people can feel excited about and not feel that they have to run away from or that you can't touch it? It's such like a taboo topic. I don't want to touch it with a 10 foot pole or we can't even mention the word anymore because sometimes people are just so uncomfortable talking about it. So what can we do about it? So I started doing a lot of research in this area and I got together with my friends and we sat down for months and months and months and months. And we really put together something that was meant to be both educational and inspiring. And the truth is that you really need both because for some people, maybe the reason why they struggle with the concept of modesty is that they don't even know what it is. So if you don't know what it is, well then why would you do it? And then second of all, there's a lot of people who do know what it is, but it's not appealing to them. And it, they, they struggle with it for other reasons. It's because they're missing the connection. They're missing the relationship because really ultimately all mitzvahs are about the relationship that we have with Hashem. So when you ask me the question, it's like, what does it really mean? Like, what is Tineas really? So after all my research and honestly, when I, I have to say that when I, when I decided this is a mitzvah that I want to, you know, I want to do, I didn't really know that much about it. All I knew was that I saw what I saw. I felt the feeling and I wanted that. And I was like, whatever it takes, I'll do it because that's something that's awesome. It was just so incredible to me compared to the lifestyle I had growing up that I was totally envious and jealous of everyone I saw who kept this lifestyle. And I say, because I, I saw it as a lifestyle. It wasn't so much like a dress code. It was more of a, a way of life and a mindset. And that's really what it is. But I, for years, did not have the ability to really articulate the answer to this question of what exactly Tzniyas is until recently, until I started, um, like I said, doing some research. And there are so many amazing Jewish women around the world who have been my, my influence in this area that have really helped me. I want to give a shout out to Hani Wolf from Base Rifka Seminary in Crown Heights, who really, um, who she gave a class, a course to college teachers that really um, shook me. It really helped change my perspective. And since then, I've worked with her a lot on creating a way to make this material accessible beyond, you know, um, the small, uh, you know, world of, of women who might be exposed to this information and I'm really trying now to make it like a, a global thing. So one of the, you know, the main things that people don't realize about Tznias is that like if you would actually search in Halacha, Hilchas Tznias, the laws of Tznias, what are the laws of modesty? You won't actually find anything about a, uh, a Jewish woman's dress code there. In fact, you'll find the laws between a husband and a wife in the bedroom. Those are the laws of uh, modesty. That, that's what's called the laws of modesty. It's more about intimacy and it's interesting. Um, so where do you go if you want to actually find what we think of as this, so to speak, dress code or this way of life or what it means to be modest in Judaism? And it turns out that it's actually a composite of five different areas of Jewish law. And, you know, I know that there's different angles that we can look at this mitzvah from, you know, like some people like to talk about the spiritual aspect of Tznias or, um, you know, the social aspects of Tznias or, you know, the benefits of Tznias, the blessings that come from all of that, you know, but one of the things that I realized was missing and, and important for people to understand is what is actually the, the basis for the concept of Tznias in Jewish law. So like I said, it turns out that it's really a composite of five different things. And in brief, in brief, and this is something that now I, you know, I, I conduct workshops on and I, I 
teach in high schools and I teach married women and all people, college women I've been doing this for just because I'm so passionate about it. But in a brief, brief nutshell, just so you walk away with something over here is that it's a composite of number one, the, the main idea is that Sneas is Yerushalayim. What is Yerushalayim? Yerushalayim means the fear of heaven. That's what it's loosely translated as. But I would say that it really means an awareness of Hashem's presence. The fact that we know that we're standing in front of the King. And what I found for a lot of people is that that in itself is so uncomfortable. Um, they associate that with so many uncomfortable feelings. Um, people don't want to be watched. They don't want to be told, you know, like they don't, they want to relax. They just want to be however they want to be without having to um, feel the feeling of uncomfortableness, so to speak, of, of being on all the time. Um, and so to that, um, one of the in, enlightening things that I came across in my studies here was, was really what the Hasidic perspective is on this idea of being in Hashem's presence. So some people might get scared off by it, but really at its core, it, it's such a beautiful, beautiful idea to be in Hashem's presence, because what does that mean? You know, most people today struggle with um, something that, is really like sometimes we associate it with teens, but I think that adults are also really struggling with this. It's like being misunderstood. Like nobody gets me. How many times do you hear that? People say just nobody knows what I really am going through. Like as much as I have my friends and I have my you know support group or whatever it is and all the people that we have in our lives today, but there's just a feeling of loneliness that, you know, like there's just a part of me that nobody gets and nobody understands. No one knows my struggle. And so one of the things that I think Hasidus helps us understand about Yerushalayim and, and what is it mean to be standing in front of the king, so to speak, is that you have a relationship where Hashem intimately cares about everything that you're doing. He cares so much and he wants to know and he does know. And so every time we feel like nobody cares, nobody notices, what's the difference? This is one one type of a relationship where we can actually look and say, wow, you know, not only am I seen, but Hashem wants to know he cares. He's very much watching in a positive way. What am I doing? Because it matters to him. And, and that's really in some ways, very comforting. It's actually very reassuring knowing that I'm not just like all alone in a vacuum, nothing I do matters, but it's the exact opposite. It's that, you know, really, it doesn't really matter what anyone else thinks. If Hashem really cares and Hashem knows what's inside, that should be primarily what is, you know, guiding my decisions and my life and everything that I'm doing. And so it's, it's honestly, this one is, is the biggest category of Tznius, the biggest chunk of Tznius, like I would say the bulk, 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 but it's the one that gets sort of overlooked the most because it doesn't have to do with other people. It's the part of, me expressing myself that has nothing to do with anyone else, but only because I recognize Hashem's presence, which means that it, it applies even alone in my bedroom at night in the dark um, when no one else is around as the halacha describes, because the first mention of this mitzvah is in the laws of getting dressed in the morning. And it's not even talking to women, by the way. And I, I think that's really important for us to know that Sneas is very universal. It's a mitzvah that applies to both men and women. It applies to everyone in all places at all times. And the shocking part is, like I said, it has nothing to do with anyone else, um, which is very surprising because I think most people, when you when you say tzniyas, they sort of associate it with like some way of protecting other people, you know, or um, making sure to, uh, I don't know, hide yourself from the rest of the world or something like that. But really, it couldn't be farther from the truth at its source. So that's really, really important to know.
the second idea of tznius in Jewish law really discusses more the parameters, you know, like how do I know what's considered appropriate or not? And for that, we have what is considered, um, you know, what parts of the body need to be covered. Um, and that applies to both men and women as well. There's there's both in, in, in that respect. There's both the biblical elements and then there's the rabbinic elements. And what's interesting is that this is one area of Jewish law, which is entirely entrusted to the women, which is the parameters and standards of what what we do to make sure that the biblical definitions of what needs to be covered and, you know, the appropriateness of our actions and behaviors are, are actually upheld. That was entrusted entirely to the women. Um, and the women are the ones who set the standards and the tone for this in each um, time and space and generation and every location. Um, and this is really, really interesting because that's how the law is set up. It's actually meant to be that we go to the respected women um, to find out what the standards should be or to ask questions whenever we're in doubt. So usually most of halacha is, um, you know, in the, so to speak, in the in the male domain in terms of authority and, and, and not in a bad way. Um, I say that with a lot of respect. Um, but it's interesting because when it comes to tznius, this is one particular mitzvah where it's the women who, so to speak, have the control over the way this looks. Um, and, and I think that that's very empowering and important for us because number one, it, it lets us know that we deep down inside have that sensitivity that if we tap into it and we really want to, um, if we really want to do the right thing, then we can um, access that within us, that we have that. And also that, you know, it's, it's a reminder of who we should be going to, that we, we always need to go to the people who we look up to in this area. And it should be the women, the women that, you know, that we feel um, are, are the ones who, are setting the standard for us that we should be asking them what, what we think. Now, in this category, so there are certain things that are considered, I guess you could say more black and white in terms of the parameters of what needs to be covered. And of course, there's many, many opinions within halacha, you know, that determine the inches and the, you know, the measuring stick, so to speak. Most people, when, when you say like, okay, what's the, you know, what's the definition of sneeze? They will say something to the effect of, oh, well, I need to cover my knees and my collarbone and my elbows. And, and you know what, honestly, um, that's just details, but really it's missing what the whole spirit of what the reason for this is and why we cover and all of that because in addition to being covered, part of what this category informs us about is that it's not just about being covered, it's also about the nature of the covering. That there's a different, there's a whole element of, let's say, drawing attention to ourselves that we wanna make sure that the attention that we're drawing is appropriate and that it's not inappropriate. Meaning that when I walk into a room, is the first thing that's noticed my body parts or is it me, is it my neshama, is it who I am as a person? Um, that actually has a lot to do with some of the details in these nuances of. Of, of what are the parameters. But in addition to that, on top of that, there's also elements of of, of what, what, you know, we, how we interact with the world. So even our speech, the type of conversations that we have with other people is a very big part of what it means to be tzniyas. And not only that, but also privacy. A lot of people don't realize, especially because we live in a world of way too much information being shared. And, you know, um, sometimes you find out things about people that you wish you didn't know. Um, and we do the same and we feel almost a pressure to share whatever's going on in our lives because everyone else is sharing. But there's an element that Hashem says is really meant to be 
private and mainly that has to do with intimacy between the relationship between a husband and a wife but even for single people i say you know like that we are still in you know if, if you're not married yet um you know you're definitely this this mitzvah absolutely applies to you in the sense that obviously whatever we do now has an effect on all future relationships so being careful with our privacy is important for um future future marriage but also because whatever we expose ourselves to affects us and ex- affects the world around us. So it's something to think about. This is what um, we are taught in terms of parameters of Tzmias to be mindful of. These are principles that we need to be thinking of as, you know, not, not just as women, but as Jewish men and women in terms of what Tzmias is all about when we think about Tzmias. The third major category is called Chukas Agoy, or it's, it's about not following the ways of the non-Jewish nations, and meaning that the Jews are meant to be distinct. Hashem created us with a specific task. A lot of people think that means that we're like some kind of elitist, you know, chosen people, but the truth of the matter is that we are chosen to be Hashem's slaves. He gave us 613 commandments, um, jobs that we have to do, and included in that is to be distinct and that we should be noticeably distinct in who we are. And I always get this question, a lot of people ask, you know, but wait a second, like, didn't we just say that we're not supposed to draw inappropriate attention to ourselves? You know, how does that go along with being distinct and that Hashem wants us to stand out in that way? So, and and many people will stand out, you know, if you're if you're dressed in, in a more sneeze way, you might stand out more in certain places when that's not the norm. So the answer is that, you know, like I said before, there's a type of attention that's inappropriate that is like more focusing on maybe parts of my body or pieces of me versus the whole me. And when we, when we stand out in a way that, you know, it's noticeable, we walk into a room because, you know, here comes a dignified person that's appropriate. That's, that's a good kind of standing out, meaning that this is someone respectable, um, you know, the same way royalty might turn some eyes. Um, and, and, we have to see ourselves as that, that we're not a nobody. Um, Hashem wants us to be, you know, respected and and that we should be proud of who we are, proud of the mission that we were chosen for, but at the same time, know our place. So um, in that category of what it means not to follow the ways of the other nations, there's a few points that we get. Number one is humility, that we we know our place, we know who we are, that we're great. Yes, we're great, but the greatness isn't because of ourselves. It's because we come from our greatness comes from Hashem. Everything that we have, all the all the powers, all of the abilities, everything comes from Hashem, and that should even be reflected in our own dress, in our speech, and our actions, and everything that we do. Um, the second concept within the category of Chukasagoy is uh, is about being um, dignified and refined versus revealing and provocative that there's a certain um, image that we as as Jewish people need to represent, that we're representing the king, so to speak, and that we should be proper representatives. And wherever we go, we should have a sense of dignity and refinement. And then lastly, there's this idea of being timeless, that yes, fashion, you know, is so appealing and attracting to us, but we have to be careful with fashion and remember that being beautiful and and being dignified and refined is absolutely uh, Jewish value, but doing something just because it's in, or because it's trendy or because this is what everyone else is doing is not our mode of operation. That we operate based on the primary idea that I'm doing what I'm doing because this is what Hashem wants from me right now, not because of what other people are doing. And that obviously speaks to a lot of things, not just clothing, but um, definitely even in our fashion choices. So, I mean, I do get this question a lot. Does that mean, you know, like I'm not allowed to look fashionable? No, that's not what it means. It just means that why am I doing it? Am I doing it to copy what they are doing, what everyone 
everyone else is doing out there? Or am I doing it because it happens to be dignified and beautiful and fit in with my SNEA standards and so on and, and is proper for, you know, for, for who I represent? So that's the that's that concept. The fourth one is about specifically the idea of men versus women and how Hashem gave us a mitzvah that men shouldn't wear women's clothing and women shouldn't wear men's clothing. And that is not just excluding, it's not just restricted to clothing. Um, in halacha, it actually describes even the usage of various cosmetics and toiletries and adornments and all sorts of things that are used exclusively by women and for women and, and vice versa for men. And this one goes both ways. And this one has to do with recognizing the way Hashem created us and being grateful for the role that we were given and embracing the role that we were given and not seeing it as anything, God forbid, less than. And as we know from, you know, from the Rebbe's teachings and something that I'm very inspired by is that, you know, the role of women in many ways is um, superior to the role of men in our ability to affect the world around us. And that SNEAS doesn't limit that in any way. In fact, it brings it out more because we have our refined way of dealing with the world. And, and part of that is, you know, is just appreciating our role. So um, not, not seeing ourselves as needing to copy or mimic the opposite gender in order to achieve perfection, but rather to focus on the unique mission that Hashem gave each of us, both as men and women, and and, and really live up to our full potential, which is very high. And the standard is very high and, and our potential is very high. So focusing on that and really being in tune with that is part of SNEAS. Um, and then the final, final category of what SNEAS is really about and this is the one a lot of people focus on as the main one, but really this is the fifth and final one and really the one that doesn't add anything practical in terms of what we actually do in terms of SNEAS, but is an important one to bring up, which is the idea of men and women supporting each other in their own unique roles. And the fact that many women aren't aware, but there are certain mitzvot, there are certain commandments that are directed to men individually as, as distinct from you know mitzvahs that women have to do on their own. And it's hard for us to relate to them because we don't have the same physiological makeup that they do. And so Hashem gave them certain commandments that they have to guard their own um, their own interactions and be careful with their with the things that they are exposed to and how they create kedusha and holiness in their own lives. And what's interesting is that it's not speaking to the women at all. There's no, there's no direct action, you know, anywhere that tells that, that says a woman um, shouldn't do certain things because, you know, it might be difficult for a man, but we do know that there's a mitzvah that says that we're not supposed to place a stumbling block in front of a blind person. And from this mitzvah, we understand that anytime we do something which could potentially cause someone else to do a sin, um, we need to be aware of that. And so the only way to know about that is to educate ourselves to know what it is that other people are actually required to do. And it happens to be that men have a big job of, of keeping their own boundaries in line when it comes to SNEAS. And part of our role is making sure that we're not getting in the way of that. Um, and and I, I say that because a lot of people have a lot of, um, I don't know, negativity surrounding this idea. And, you know, especially on college campuses, you hear this a lot, you know, it's my body, my choice, or, you know, um, he should, you know, take care of himself. That's his problem, not my problem. But the way that we look at it in Judaism, I guess you could say from this perspective, 
ask is that we are a team. The men are not some other body of people, you know, that are out to get us or, you know, the enemy. We're talking about our fathers, our husbands, our brothers, and our sons. And this is something that the Rebbe really emphasizes in this topic is that, you know, reminding us that we are partners and we have to support each other. So just like they have to be a strong support for us in the roles that we have, we have to be a strong support for them. And part of Tzniyas, when I do my job in, you know, the previous four categories and making sure that I'm, you know, um, doing what's befitting, then I'm also helping to support all the men in my life as well around me. So we are influencers in that way. In the positive, we really have to, we have to see it like that. We have to see ourselves as we are holding up the ship. The women have a very strong influence when it comes to upholding the Kedusha, the holiness of the Jewish nation. And a lot of that is in our, is in our hands and we should, we should really um, take advantage of it. That's so beautiful. And that's, I love that you did it in five steps and it's so comprehensive and so easy to understand. And it's so deep because it really goes beyond, like we were saying, it goes beyond the layer of clothing. It's not just the clothing. And especially the last one, you know, men also have, men have the obligation to, to guard their eyes, you know, and we don't want to be, we as women don't want to be the ones who are dressing in a provocative way that would make a man stumble. You know, we don't want to put a stumbling block in front of the, you know, in front of the blind. We don't want him to be looking at us because then we cause him to sin. We cause him to break his own boundaries of um so yeah I, I really feel like it's very important that way and speaking of that you know dressing in a certain way i mean um having a true sense of self and having people look at you and seeing you for who you truly are as opposed to just seeing the superficial side outside of you is really part of the media of, of snoot but you know let's get real for a minute if you're in a shopping mall uh if you're taking a walk outside if you're playing in the park with your kids and you take a look around and you see women wearing crop tops and leggings and you see them wearing shorts and skirts and you, the, the shirts with the shoulder part cut out and if you live in parts of the country that are typically warmer all year round short shorts are really a mainstay of the wardrobe and the truth is many women who look scantily clad they, they look attractive and they receive attention and they, they receive looks of admiration from both men and women alike and Listen, all women love to feel beautiful and attractive. And, you know, in our society, we have a wide variety of clothes to choose from in order to help us achieve this look. And for many women, there is no incentive to be modest because modesty doesn't get you the looks of, wow, she looks hot. Wow, she's beautiful. You know, however, in reality, we know that those are not really the looks and the types of comments that we really, really deeply want to be receiving. So I just want to ask you in the midst of all this, in the midst of the other nations, as you were saying earlier, we don't, we, we have to be distinctly separate from the other nations. So how can we inspire a revolutionary way of thinking about this area of Jewish life, this sneeze area of Jewish life, the way that we dress and the way that we present ourselves in the world? So, you know, in, um, in Aisha's Chayel, which we say, you know, we, we say this line, Sheker hachin vehevel hayofi, Yisha yiras Hashem, he tisalo. That it's on the one hand, you know, okay, like what's beauty? What's, um, you know, all of the, you know, the external things, it's just vanity, you know, really it's, it's Yerashamayim, that's what's to be praised. But, you know, if you, if you look at the description of the Imahais, if you look at our mothers, you know, the way they're described, all of them are described as beautiful. And why is that? Because the beauty was a reflection of their Yerashamayim, meaning the true beauty is that Yerashamayim is what gives the beauty. Um, what's interesting 
you know, on a very practical level to answer this question, you know, this is what I would say to anyone listening is that we have to ask ourselves when we're in the world, because we, we are in the world. I, I'm assuming anyone who's listening to a podcast, you know, has internet access is, is somehow in the world. So, you know, I don't know which community you're from and, you know, and, and what level of Jewish observance you're on, but you're obviously somewhat involved in the world. And one thing that we have to be asking ourselves out in the world is, am I being influenced by my surroundings or am I the one influencing my surroundings? And as Jewish women, especially, we need to be the ones doing the influencing. Um, and I think that that's very empowering, meaning instead of looking around us and being like, you know, tempted and feeling like left out or feeling bad about who we are, the opposite, opposite, opposite is true. That we have to be proud of who we are and we have to realize that everyone else is envious of us, you know, and, and wants what we have. And we have to be the ones setting the tone and setting the standards, setting the trends, setting the fashion, so to to speak when it comes to um, our surroundings. So don't worry about what other people are doing. Now, why am I saying this with such confidence? Because really at the end of the day, you know, um, as Jews, really um, we have a major, a major principle that should be guiding our life. And this is a, a famous quote from the Gemara that says, I was only created to serve my creator. That's why I'm here. That was the only reason I was created was just for that purpose. So what is my mode of operation. My mode of operation is always going to be, what does Hashem want from me right now in this situation? That's the only question I have to answer. I don't have to answer anyone else around me, you know, what they, you know, what they think is in or fashionable or looks good or not. What matters to me should just be that. That should be my, my number one, um, my number one question. And I have to say that this is not just about Sneas, but this is really about all of Yiddishkeit, of all Judaism. Um, if you really want to know how to deal with when things are difficult, you know, and believe me, it's not easy to do Shabbos. It's not easy to do kosher. It's not easy to do a lot of things when you're living in the world. Forget Sneas. Um, there's a lot of basic things, but it always has to come down to that question. What does Hashem want from me right now in this situation? Now, when we talk about free choice a lot, you know, it's like some people think um, that free choice means I can do whatever I want. And the truth is that we don't really have that much free choice because a lot of things are already predetermined for us. Like we don't have a lot of choice in life over the things that happen to us and the circumstances that we're in. In fact, the only thing, I guess, according to Hasidus, that we really have free choice over is just one thing, is whether or not we do what Hashem wants at any given moment. That's it. Everything else, forget it. We don't have, we don't have control. Um, you know, and I know a lot of people today struggle with, with that and with, um, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of feeling of being really overwhelmed in the world. And I think it's very comforting to just like appreciate that and realize I don't have control over anything, but that's what I have control over the world. What I'm to do, what Hashem wants at any given moment in time. And so that is very empowering. And that's what we should be asking ourselves. So I, I hope I answered the question. <laughs> you did. You did. You answered it really well. And it's really, it's an overarching answer, which is the best. What does Hashem want for me in this situation? And you're right. It goes beyond sneers. And that's really the question that we should be asking ourselves at all times in any situation. I think it's, thank you. That's a great answer. Um, and I just want to ask you, if there's an anecdote or two that you can share about someone you know who has had a pivotal experience in their lives after they made a change in, in their level of sneers? Is there maybe a story you could share with us about how sneers had like a noticeable impact on somebody's life? 
So I actually thought of two stories. They're both personal um, and they're, I, you know, they're almost answering the question, but in a way sort of shifting the question a bit. So I hope you'll forgive me for that. But um, it's actually how the, um, Hashem helped out in, in situations of Sneas. Um, for me personally, I mentioned, you know, that I, I grew up um, not, you know, not keeping any of this at all. And when I went to college, this was all totally, um, you know, not part of my life whatsoever. And at, at some point when I had got involved with Chabad a little bit and, you know, and, and had an exposure to a different way of life and I actually took a trip to Crown Heights and saw the community there and felt very, very inspired. One of the things, like I said, that I felt was like a very strong sense of jealousy. And I, I felt like, wow, I really want what they have, but oh, well, like, and I definitely felt this feeling of like, it's definitely too late for me. And it's too bad that I really missed that opportunity to have what these people have. Um, and, and part of it was a feeling of like being totally desensitized and just like not feeling anything. And so, but it, it, and feeling so like, wow, look how the smallest little thing is so meaningful, you know, to this community and these people. So fast forward. So I, I ended up, I went back to college after this trip. And when I was on my way to a Shabbat dinner, actually at the Hillel, which I, I told you before, I used to lead the services there every week, the conservative services. So I went with my friend and I was starting to make some changes in my life kind of gradually. Like I was um, wearing skirts, mostly not because I hadn't, I had decided I'm never going to wear pants again, but just, it was something I didn't feel comfortable with. Like it was something I wanted to do. I wanted to try it. And I also started going by my Hebrew name, which was something I didn't use before. And my friend who I was close with noticed this and we were on our way walking to the Friday night services at Hillel together. And she said, you know, that's crazy. You know, I see you're starting to do all this and that and that, and you know, all these little changes. And she said, you know, next thing you know you're going to tell me is that you're Shomer Nagia. Now, honestly, Shomer Nagia, which basically means, you know, that men and women don't touch each other, you know, unless they're married or close relatives type thing. That wasn't really something I knew anything about. I didn't even know what those words meant, to be honest, at the time, but I was kind of familiar and I had an idea what she said. And I was, I was understanding from what she said that she probably meant, oh, that's that thing that I see all these people who are religious doing that seems so, you know, exciting to me because there's something really special about that. But I had already kind of decided in my mind, yeah, well, it's too late for me. So, oh, well, I missed that boat. And I remember she asked me that and I was just quiet. And then we got to the Hillel where, you know, about 150, maybe more of our closest friends were all gathered for Shabbat dinner. And my job was to be the greeter and I would give everybody a hug at the door and, you know, welcome them. And we would, you know, make the announcements, my friend and I. And so she got up before I did to make the announcements. She stood up on the chair and she turned to everyone. And this was like all my friends who I had made in college all at once, pretty much under one roof. And she stood up and she said, hey, everybody, Shabbat Shalom. She's like, I just want to make an announcement. Bracha is now Shomer Nagia. And she probably thought it was a funny joke, but I remember I turned bright red and I was like totally embarrassed, but I remember like, I was just looking around, like, where's the fastest exit, but there was no way out. I was like stuck sandwiched in between all these people and I didn't know what to do. And honestly, the most incredible thing happened at that point. So basically all these people came over to me and instead of, you know, they were like reaching their arms out to kind of hug me and then they stopped themselves and they said, wait, wait, oh yeah, that's right. You're Shomer Nagia now. Okay. Well, wow. You know, tell us about that. What made you decide to do that? That's so interesting. Like, wow, you know, um, we're so interested. Tell us more. Now, honestly, I was just standing there. Like I didn't know what hit me and I wasn't planning for that. I wasn't prepared for that. I didn't even know what Shomer Nagia was, to be honest, but I had like this vague idea in my head and it was something I was like dreaming about, but you know, on the spot. And, you know, the reason why I'm sharing this story is because deep 
down inside, it was something that I wanted to do very badly and felt that it was impossible, impossible because of my lifestyle and my situation that I was in and the role that I was in and the kind of person that I was and how social I was and all the friends that I had. It was totally impossible. But I say this because I think Hashem really looked into my heart and saw deep down inside how badly I wanted this and how much I really, really wanted to try this out and gave me an opportunity that I couldn't have even dreamed of if I would have dreamt it, um, you know, a, a, a better situation. And so in that moment, all of a sudden, in one moment, all of the people that I knew not only heard, you know, and went on board with it, but they were really actually respectful of it in a very strange way that inspired me to want to learn more about it. So I did. And I, you know, I needed to be able to give them answers and explain myself. So of course I did some more research, but it was incredible because over the next weeks and months that followed, um, I was able to see how I was able to regain that sensitivity back again. And something that I thought was lost forever was not. And it was shocking because I remember when people would come up to me and, you know, accidentally hug me or, you know, try to, you know, um, you know, touch me in some way. I felt like, wait, you know, why are you touching me? Like, I felt very uncomfortable with it. And then I, I noticed myself being, you know, transformed. And so it was something that I saw myself like firsthand and I saw the power of it. But I also realized that I guess the lesson for, for everyone here is that when you want to do something and you want to do the right thing, even though sometimes it's extremely hard, maybe even impossible or seemingly impossible, that all you have to do is, you know, just make a tiny effort, even just the, the desire in your own heart. And, you know, Hashem really helps you out more than halfway when it comes to doing the right thing. And, and so, you know, we have to, we have to just try our, our, our best, make little tiny efforts, and, and we'll be very surprised to see how much we'll get that, that help from on high. That, that was one story that I wanted to share. I have another story to share, um, which is a little different, but I think it's just a very powerful story about Smeas, and this also happened to me, and it, it's a powerful story on many levels, um, but it's just unbelievable. I, I'm still blown away every time I, I think of it or share it, which is that as I was becoming more religious, so when I already started becoming more religious, I was, you know, thinking ahead, and I was thinking about getting married, and I was thinking how, you know, one day it's going to come, you know, or I'm going to have to um, start to prove my Jewish identity. And the reason why I bring this up is because, you know, my family who was all, you know, my, both of my parents are Jewish and my grandparents are Jewish. And, you know, we had some Jewish traditions, but um, it weren't like very observant. And I never heard anything from any of the history of my families about any observant members of the family. And I started to wonder you know, um, what I was going to do to be able to, you know, kind of show for my Jewish identity from more of a legal perspective. And it kind of bothered me. And I actually decided that at some point, and I was too embarrassed to talk about it with anyone. I was very shy about it. I don't know why it was just something that I felt very uncomfortable about. So I did decided instead that I was going to write a letter to the Rebbe, to the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And I actually took my letter to the Ohel, to the Rebbe's resting place in Queens. And it was on era of Rosh Hashanah, right before, you know, a time when people generally daven by Kivrei Tzedikim and, and so on. And it was a, a custom to do that. So I, I went there and I wrote a letter to the Rebbe sort of asking for some clarity in this area. Like, how will I, you know, be able to prove this? So um, fast forward a few months later, I get an email from a man in Lakewood, New Jersey, who tells me that he's my relative and that he wants to speak to me. And I, you know, I, I give him my phone number, he calls me and we start having this whole conversation and he tells me this whole story. He said that this past year on era of Rosh Hashanah, so this was just a few months before he was with his family davening by the graves of their closest relatives, which is what their custom was to do every era of Rosh Hashanah. And while they were there, they noticed that one of the, the gravestones of a 
family member was toppled over. And so him and his father who were there, they noticed it, they took pictures of it. And they, you know, and, and this man who called me was telling me the story. He said that he asked his father, so who are these people? You know, I don't know this name. He didn't recognize the last name. And he said, oh, those were our cousins. He said, but you know, we haven't had anything to do with them for generations, you know, for years. Um, we used to play with them. I remember when we were little kids, but then our parents didn't let us continue that friendship anymore because, you know, they were basically not so religious and they didn't have anything to do with Judaism. And so we sort of um, phased out that, that relationship. And, you know, I haven't spoken to them in, in years and years and years. That's what the father told his son while they were there at the grave at, at the cemetery. And anyway, so the son was very intrigued by the story and he was very into genealogy and he decided that he wants to find out, you know, who are the children of this couple, the one that were, you know, had the headstone that was knocked over to, and, and part of it was that he wanted to find out if maybe there was someone in the family who would be interested in the mitzvah of helping to repair this gravestone. And that's where he was coming from in his mind. And so he started doing some research and he found out that this woman had 10 children, um, the wife of the one who was in need of repair, the, the gravestone, and, and that she that this couple had 10 children and that basically all of them had sort of left Judaism um, and that none of them really had much to do with Judaism. In fact, many of them had intermarried, in fact, and like were very much far from Jewish practice. And everyone that he, you know, every one of the descendants who not all of them were alive, you know, but the the ones who were like the grandchildren and the great grandchildren and the great great grandchildren of this couple, he was contacting them left and right. And to his dismay, like wasn't able to find anyone, you know, that would kind of fit the description of what he was looking for. But then he was telling me the story and I'm listening on the phone. And he, he tells me, you know, like if I, if this person is my relative and that person is my relative, I say, oh yeah, that's my great uncle. That's my great aunt. Yeah. I know those names. And he says, yeah, I know your whole family. I did the whole research and everything. And he said, yeah, in fact, I spoke to your grandmother and my grandmother at the time was working for a Hollywood film producer as an executive assistant. And when he called her up and said, are there any religious people in the family? You know, she said, no, I don't know. We don't have any of those. And then she's like, oh, wait, 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 wait. Actually, she's like, I have a granddaughter who's living in Brooklyn now. Yeah, you should go speak to her. So he, she gave him my number and my email and that's how we got in touch. And I'm listening to this whole story. And I said, wait a second. So like, what happened with the gravestone? And he said, oh, he's like, actually, you know, I already fixed it months ago myself because I realized that this was taking way too long and there wasn't anyone who seemed to be, you know, remotely interested in this mitzvah. So now I'm listening to this and I'm like, okay, so why did you, you know, keep looking then for religious people in the family? Like why, if you already, if you already found, you know, fixed it months ago, what's going on here? He said, well, he was very interested in the family tree and wanted to find out, but he said, I'll tell you something that I took a photograph of the gravestone of this woman and on her gravestone, it had these words written on it. It said, Isha Hatsnua Vahachashuva which means that she was a modest and important woman. And he said that when he saw that, at that time, he was in Kola learning and he was um, learning the Gemara about the famous story of Kimchas. And Kimchas was a woman who lived in the times of the Gemara, who was known for the fact that she had seven sons and every single one of them had the privilege to become a Kohen Gadol during her lifetime. And not because they all passed away, God forbid, but because of some sort of minor disqualification that actually was very unusual that they each had the opportunity to do that. And so these sages came to her and said and interviewed her like a podcast. They were like, hey, Kimchas, you know, tell us, what did you do to merit this? You know, why, like, what was the thing that 
you did to deserve such a great um, merit that all of your seven sons had this great opportunity. So she said her answer was that the that the hair of my that the sorry the walls of my home never saw the hair on my head, and that she was never exposed even in front of the the beams of her home, and. Anyway, so he had just learned this and, and the, the Gemara goes on to explain how like this has a tremendous effect that we see that the mitzvah of Tzniyas, you know, affects a woman's children and all of the generations to come. And this man is hearing, you know, learning the story. He sees this woman's gravestone who says, Isha and what's his conclusion? He says to himself that it's not possible that a woman who has those words written on her gravestone cannot possibly have a single descendant who is, you know, Torah observant. Like it just didn't make sense to him, you know, as he's like putting this all together. So he kept going and going and going until he finally found me. And lo and behold, I was that person, you know, um, that he finally found that was, you know, leading this religious lifestyle. And honestly, I have to say that up until that point, aside from like how I was so shocked, how, you know, uh, my answer that my quote, my letter that I wrote to the Rebbe was, was directly answered because this woman was my mother's 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 mother. So it was like direct line, you know, me having all this proof right away of my Jewish identity and all these connections and whatnot. But that was besides the point. What I realized deep down inside is that all this time I had always thought like I'm this radical breakaway from my family tradition of basically people who are not necessarily so Torah observant, but, you know, they thought I was crazy in some ways, you know, leading this religious Orthodox lifestyle. What am I doing? You know, and then finding out that actually, in fact, that, you know, and this is probably true for many people in my situation, you know, that their great, great grandparents were actually um, leading a religious lifestyle. But besides that, I also felt, you know, like, you know, here I am, I did this myself, I paved the way I pushed through, I'm the one that got myself here. And no, um, chances are, you know, it was my great, great, great grandmother, who was the one who whatever she did, whatever mitzvahs she observed, whatever things she kept, was the reason why I'm here. And the reason why my family is here. And the reason why, you know, any of us are here um, and we don't know, we just don't know the impact that we have with our, with our observance. And so I was really, I mean, I was totally blown away by this story for myself, but also just really inspired. And, and, you know, sometimes we get caught up in like how difficult a mitzvah is or how uncomfortable it might be or how um, not interesting it is to us. Um, but we forget that, you know, like we're not even living our lives in a vacuum, not in terms of, you know, that, of course, we know that we're all connected to each other, but even generationally, that even when I do something now, how I don't even know how that's affecting the generations to come from me. And that in of itself, I think is very powerful and very motivating. And so I wanted to share that story with you. Hopefully it will inspire someone listening that, you know, you just never know what the impact is of our actions. And especially when we think nobody knows, nobody sees, nobody cares, you know, so we have to, you know, get inspired. <laughs> I love that. Oh, wow. I love that. It's a hundred percent. We don't know how, what we do is going to affect generations upon generations and generations, you know, long, long after we pass away, just, the, just like it happened to you. It's really amazing. And also the same thing with davening with prayers. Sometimes we think we're praying and praying and praying and that Hashem isn't answering our prayers and we're praying in vain, but those prayers can be used by our great, 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 great grandchildren. So there's no, there's no effort of observance and there's no prayer that ever goes to waste. Um, so we have, we literally have just a few minutes left. I just have one, one question. And, you know, I want to say if you're not used to being sneeze, to being modest, and if it's not something that you can fully change overnight, you know, it really, really does take time. However, if there are women listening today who would like to take that very first step toward being sneeze, what is one quick, easy step that they could take right now so they can get on that track to being sneeze? That's a really great question. So look, 
most of SNES, and this is going to be a shock to people, is not actually what we're doing, but it's what we're not doing. And that's what's really hard about it, because most of SNES is what we're rejecting, <laughs> meaning there's a lot of things that we might want to do, but we didn't do them. I mean, that's actually most of Judaism. The truth is there's more negative commandments than positive commandments. And that tells us something that every time we stop ourselves from doing something we want to do and we don't do it, that's big. So we have to you know, appreciate that. So anyone who's listening should know that you know, if you want to do something, there's there's a lot of things you can do. Um, but even just not doing something that you wanted to do and you stopped yourself from doing it, that's also big. And you're not going to get a lot of you know, um, recognition for that necessarily. And the only one that will notice really is Hashem. But that's okay because we're not doing it for the rewards and the recognition. It's about the relationship. So if you're if you're connected and you and you feel close, um, and, and that actually brings me, you know, one of the, the suggestions that I was thinking of that in, in my mind would be like seemingly the most encompassing, like the most way to affect, you know, someone on a deep level is to really be connected to Hashem. So how do you get connected to Hashem? Because when you're in a relationship with Hashem and you and you feel that closeness, it's more automatic. It's a given that you'll do the actions that Hashem wants. So one way is by by having, you know, the awareness of Hashem's presence. The Rebbe actually spoke many times in letters about saying the beginning of chapter 41 of Tanya, which addresses this point, which talks about being in the awareness of Hashem's presence. He said to actually say that before davening. And look, even if you're barely davening or you're only davening for a minute a day, or you only have five seconds, you know, just to connect to Hashem on some level, this is still a beautiful thing to think about or do, which is who are you standing in front of having that cognizant you know, like that's a big deal. But I also want to be practical and I don't want to, you know, obviously I think that it will be helpful in the long run if everyone would do some meditation or some, you know, inner contemplation of what it means to be in Hashem's presence. So that will affect everything for, for all time. But on a practical, practical level, this would be my suggestion is I would say to take your wardrobe, go through your wardrobe, look at all the things that you have currently in your closet. Okay. Just from a very practical perspective, you know, and just like we have, you know, everyone I'm sure is familiar with this like concept does it spark joy? You know, and we always talk about Pesach cleaning or, you know, like spring cleaning and getting rid of stuff. And if it doesn't spark joy, get rid of it. Okay. So here's what we're going to do on the, in the, in the Tzniyas realm is we're going to ask ourselves a few questions. We're going to say, you know, is this outfit dignified? Is it um, something that's refined? Is it something that I look beautiful in? And if not, move on from it, um, you know, and put it aside and say, you know, I'm going to replace that with something that I do feel is more refined or more dignified. That's one thing that we can do. We can all do that. Um, and there's always levels and there's always different, you know, uh, things, actions that we can take. There's so many different elements of sneeze. Cause as you see, it's not like one point, it's so many different things and it's not just dress, it's thought, speech, and action. They all go together. So um, I wanted to mention, you know, that if anyone um, is, is interested in more that I, I just put up a, a very, very, very basic bone, bare bones website, modestyandmashiach.com. You can go to that. What I put up there now were some meditations that we can use to think about. And that if you want to have one major, major takeaway from this podcast, it would be what are the questions that I should be asking myself to enhance my connection to Hashem in the area of Tznias. And, and, the, and I just put, I put them up there and I'll just read them now, just a short list. So number one, am I focused on the fact that I am constantly in Hashem's presence? What can I do to invite Hashem into my life? Is my covering adequate? Am I drawing the appropriate kind of attention to myself? Is my speech refined and appropriate? Am I maintaining clear privacy boundaries? 
do I portray a sense of humility? Am I dignified and refined in my actions and dress? Is my look timeless? Am I distinctly feminine, reflecting the greatness Hashem created me with? Am I mindful of my effect on my surroundings and my ability to influence? So those are just some of the things I think that we can take away. And even if we just have one of those thoughts in our day that we added to what we had yesterday, then we're already improving. Amazing. Amazing. Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rabbits and Bracha, for taking the time to join us on America's Top Rabbitsons. We really enjoyed having you here on the show. And may all the learning that we did today be for Rafua Shalema, for Eliezer Raphael Le Ben-Amuna, and also for Chaim Shaya Ben-Malka Brena. Thank you so, so much. My pleasure. Thank you.